everyone. Welcome once again to the podcast. This is a special edition. This is Truth Script Tuesday, which is a very new podcast. Um, as many of you know, I host the Conversations That Matter podcast and uh, and enjoy that greatly. But um, one of the things that I wanted to do is bring everyone's attention to a new website, TruthScript, that it has a lot of really great articles, articles that are forward thinking, vision building, practical. Um, I don't want to just be uh, complaining or not that that's all I do, but I don't want to just be talking about negative things happening and how, how should we rightly think about this? I want to I want to talk about what can we do? Uh, and part of the mission of TruthScript is to bring a positive vision as much as possible. Uh, and, and we have been bereft of that for quite some time. And so um, this is the first uh, podcast for TruthScript Tuesday, where we're going to start talking about positive things, positive vision for you uh, as you live your life. And um, I have the privilege today of talking to someone who I know personally, a very fascinating uh, individual. Uh, his name is Jacob Dell. He is a rector at St. Peter's uh, Lithgow, uh, and you can go to stpetersLithgow.org uh, if you want to find out more about his ministry. He has a website, uh, jwdell at substack.com. I'm going to put all of these in the info section for the video. Uh, he is um, on the board also for the Evangelical Fellowship in the Anglican Communion. So um, I, I guess I should... should what, what do they call you, Reverend? I guess for a vicar, Reverend. Uh, Reverend, yeah, that's fine. Yeah, or, they call you yeah. Vicar, <laughs> Vicar Dell. Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah, first time I've ever had a vicar on the podcast. So <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, well, Reverend Dell, thank you so much uh, for joining me and for writing uh, this article for TruthScript on Reconquista, and really talking about what you're doing in some ways, um, operating in a, a fairly liberal denomination uh, that. You know, I, I was just surprised to even find there were still people in that denomination trying to uh, be salt and light. So tell us a little bit about yourself, how you came to be in the position you're in now um, and, and what you what you can accomplish, even in uh, a denomination that doesn't share many of your theological beliefs anymore, at least on the on the, I guess, the local church level. Sure. Thanks. Well, thanks, John. Thanks for having me on. Uh, good to see you. Uh, yes. So I am a priest in the Episcopal Church here in the Diocese of New York. Um, uh, my church is in Dutchess County, so north of the city, about 70, 80 miles. And I've uh, been a priest uh, for going. This will be my 10th year come November. Um, and uh, this is the second church I've served. My last church was in the city, a parish in, in the northern uh, tip of Manhattan. We used to call it upstate Manhattan called uh, Holy Holy Trinity Inwood. And um, in both cases, I think I've had the chance to speak or preach to congregations that, um, well, I mean, the common reaction to my sermons, uh, if people weren't immediately turned off by them was, wow, why don't other preachers sound like this? <laughs> and I, my answer was, well, because I'm, I'm actually trying to go through the text here that we've just read and explain what it means to you and, and preach and preach the gospel. And um uh, so that's uh, that's that's sort of my story. I'm, I'm married, have children. Uh, they're mostly grown by now, and uh, um, and uh, had a desire to be a minister from a, a pretty young age. I was baptized when I was 14 in the Presbyterian Church USA, um, and uh, you know, for uh, life took its various turns, and I kind of was a late vocation. So I was ordained a priest when I was 40. So how do you go from, uh, with your theological convictions, especially, and, and especially going from the PCUSA, that's interesting to me too. What, 
walk me through how you got to the uh, Episcopalian church, because that just seems like not the natural course of events. But Yeah, there's a lot of people who say they're cradled Episcopalians, which means they've been actually born in the Episcopal church. Most of us, I think, have come in through some other route. Um, my, I may be an example of one of the earliest examples of a nun in the sense I was born in 1973. I was Generation X. My parents, my mother was a former Roman Catholic. My dad, an ex-Presbyterian. Uh, they decided not to have me baptized. They decided not really to raise me in, in anything. And then um, my parents got divorced. My mother moved and I moved out to uh, Los Angeles, California. Um, and she put me into a Catholic school. So I got some pretty early exposure to Christian community. Uh, we had Thursdays uh, would be scripture uh, day and we'd get the readings for the following Sunday and there were school masses and things like that. When I was in eighth grade, all of my friends were getting confirmed and I thought, I want to get confirmed too. Uh, that's when my dad kind of got religion and said, well, you know, the family's Presbyterian. So I, I, I joined the uh, Presbyterian church at that point. I actually went with him to church one day and, they, and I fell in love with the hymns that they were singing. The Catholics were doing all this sort of guitar folk masses at the time. And so the, the Presbyterians were doing these old, um, old fashioned hymns. And I really hadn't heard them before and I loved them. Um, so I joined the Presbyterian church in high school, um, uh, freshman year of high school. But then when I got to college, I uh, went to college in Connecticut and there weren't a lot of Presbyterians around. It was more of a congregational place. Um, the Episcopal church also was very well represented. I had this kind of, um, experience in England the summer before where I was staying at Oxford University I, and I would go to the uh, Church of England chapel services there during the summer and um, really kind of fell in love with 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 uh, with the Church of England at that point and so more or less kind of became you know it, 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 I didn't turn my back on PCUSA for theological reasons I just there was you know an opportunity to go to church in the Episcopal Church uh, in college and I and I found the liturgy and the prayer book very, very um, uh, something that drew me yeah okay so that's fascinating so so when you were you were at Yale and that mm -hmm. and you went to Yale Divinity right no, I went and, to Yale as an undergraduate, and then oh. about ten years later, I went to Neshota, which is an Episcopal seminary in Wisconsin. Ah, um, okay, and uh, that's that has you've a, been around. I've been around, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, all right, so you, you go to uh, an Episcopal seminary, mm -hmm. and then you come out. You get your where's your first church that you were a rector uh, or a priest? Well, I actually worked for a little while at the denominational headquarter offices in New York City, which was interesting. That wasn't a, a pastoral ministry. I was working in their communications office, uh, so it was fascinating. You get to sort of see how a major. Um, you know, national, international denomination really works. Um, and then in 2015, my first uh, pastorate was, uh, that was when I took my first church as, as solo pastor. Interesting. Okay. So you're, you're a solo pastor now. So you've been pastoring now, you said 2015, right? So you've been pastoring now for seven years mm -hmm. um, at two different churches, three different churches, two different churches. Yeah. Okay. And, and so now you're, you live actually, you're not far from me, just so the audience knows. Um, that's how we met actually was in person. And you find yourself though, in a position where, uh, and this is the interesting thing that we want to talk about in this podcast, where you are in a denomination that I, I don't know what the stats would be, but the most people in your position would not agree with you on some pretty fundamental things, I would think. Yeah, certainly that's something that's changed in the 30 years I've been sort of involved with this uh, because the Episcopal Church went as the, as the whole Anglican communion at this point on going through a schism. Um, and so 
I think one of the things that this article talks about and that you've talked about in other podcasts and this just sort of discussed is, you know, why do, why do quote unquote conservatives always have to leave and start something new? Isn't that a fundamentally unconservative thing to do, right? I mean, and maybe the argument is, is that because they fundament, they've been completely ineffective conserving anything in the places where they've, where they are. So, uh, and there are a lot of reasons for that. And, and, you know, when I was in seminary, that was when the split was happening in the Episcopal church. And so, you know, I'd go into chapel at the beginning of the semester and we were all in the same church. And then by the end of it, half of us weren't. So it was, it was, it was an interesting time. So I think it's been kind of a through attrition that I'm left with a you know, handful of others, but not as few as you'd think who are, are um, you know, trying to keep, keep, keep faith. Yeah. Well, you say um, in your article here, which I'll pull up so everyone can see, um, you talk about, uh, I guess, some others who are trying to be salt and light in various denominations and, 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 and discussing this idea of taking back or um, restoring really mm-hmm. these denominations that have gone off the rails. So you talk about this, this one individual redeemed zoomer, mm-hmm. uh, a YouTube handle for someone who um, uh, has the mission to restore. In this case, it's the PCUSA. Right. So not the PCA. We talk about the PCA sometimes on my other podcast, uh, conversations that matter, but this is the, this is the more, much more liberal PC USA. And he's saying, you know, there's something can be done here. Um, wh- what are the thoughts of, uh, I, I guess he's the main one that you're talking about in this article, but what, what's the strategy that he wants to employ, uh, and others like him for doing this? Cause it seems like such a daunting task. It is a daunting task. And I think, you know, he sounds pretty young and he reminds me a lot of myself when I was, uh, uh, you know, in high school and college and, and, and really wondering and thinking the same thing that things that he was wondering about. So, you know, I'd go to my at that time Presbyterian church and I'd be the only person under 30 there. I mean, there were some children, little young children, but where was where was my age group? Um, and, you know, I went to uh, I did one year at a Presbyterian uh, affiliated prep school. Um, but it had almost no, uh, you know, visible identity as a Presbyterian school at all. So I would, you know, ask these questions as like, what, what happened uh, to these organizations? And same thing at Yale. You know, when I was at Yale, there was still some vestigial uh, Christianity left. The chaplain, I think, of the university had to be a Congregationalist minister. That changed even when I was there. Uh, there were still hymns actually sung at the baccalaureate and the, uh, the freshman assembly. Um, and they, you know, one was, oh, God, beneath thy guiding hand, our exiled fathers crossed the waves, you know, and it was all about the, the Puritans coming to found the New, <laughs> the New Haven colony, which just sent chills down my spine. But I think other people either, you know, didn't care or didn't know what he was even referring to. So I, you know, have been on this sort of question, question, why, how, how do all these institutions lose their identity um, and, and what was the explanation for that drift? So um, he seems to be wondering, redeem Zoomer, the same thing. But so he, in what he thinks is is very, um, it's it's intriguing and, and somewhat, I think, plausible. Which is to say that you know, if you are, um, if you can get four or five uh, faithful, believing Christians, um, biblical Christians, to walk into the downtown. Uh, 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 Protestant church, mainline Protestant church somewhere, whether it's Presbyterian, Episcopal, Methodist, Lutheran, whatever, 
you know, what are you going to find? You're going to find a, a large, a big, large space with very few people in it. And um, it's ripe, he says, for just sort of colonizing it and, and going in and saying, OK, you know, bringing some fresh blood and some life to it and uh, joining its committees and joining its leadership boards, whether those are sessions or vestries or board of elders or what or what have you. And and then really sort of, you know, grabbing the reins from an aging generation that's dying out. I mean, the statistics for the mainline church are, 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 are terrible at this point. We're looking at a, a demographic collapse over the next five to 10 years. The, you know, more than one study says that there will not be an Episcopal church or there will not be a, a Methodist church or maybe not a Methodist church, but some of these, you know, PCUSA, some of these churches simply will statistically not exist with, by, you know, 20, 30, 20, 40, whatever you want to say. Um, so his idea is that you know, why go through the trouble of starting something new when you can come uh, and, and re reanimate something that's old? And what he also says is that with that goes all of these legacy connections, these legacy, you know, uh, these these churches are embedded in their communities. They've often, you know, sponsored or, or, or developed a local hospital system or schools or, um, you know, there's there's and he's, he's right. There's 300 plus years of of, of deep connection between these these old Protestant denominations and the fabric of this country. So uh, he's his hope is to reactivate that where you can. I think the downside of where he's not really necessarily um, understanding is, you know, biblical Christians are in short supply to begin with. <laughs> but, um, you know, these churches all have a lot of problems. And my last church, you know, was was uh, was a. Uh, uh, Lots of deferred maintenance, lots of capital issues, you know, million, millions of dollars, right? So to go in there and really fix it up is beyond uh, the capacity of a handful of, 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 you know, Zoomers to, you know, to, they don't have the pocketbook for that, right? And maybe at some point you got to ask, is it worth throwing good money after bad as well? Yeah. Okay. So these are all prudential things to weigh. But for those who, let's say, are in the Southern Baptist Convention or the PCA and they're watching things play out. Right. And they're saying, man, you know, we would have to like I've said this a, a lot of times with the Southern Baptists, they'd have to really bring their friends mm -hmm. a, and a lot of them to a convention to win. And that seems to never at least the last few years that has not happened. Uh, they're outnumbered every time. And, the, you know, the, the line that they often give is, well, most of the churches are with us. That could be. But if they don't show up for your annual meeting, it doesn't right. matter. It doesn't matter how many of them are for you. You have to be able to bring uh, your crowd. And. The, the interesting thing, because and outvote them, but if you walked into a, a PCUSA church or an Episcopalian church in your community, you could probably, I, I think what he's saying is that hurdle is, is much lower. You don't have to jump as high. You can bring in even, I don't know, uh, you know 20 people and you might be able to control the church like mm -hmm. because the, the population is so old and dying. And I think um, also evangelical Lutherans might be in this. I went to an evangelical yeah. Lutheran church not long ago. And same thing. I turned around and I thought, well, my wife and I are like the youngest here. Right. You know, it's everyone had gray hair. He's absolutely um, right. Yeah. And, you know, the, mine is a small country church right now. So, you know, we probably only hold 90 people in it. And so we're, you know, we're averaging 45, 50 people on a Sunday and, and the church feels full. But there are churches that are, you know, five to 10 people is what the average Sunday attendance is. And they're five times the size. So yes, if you could walk in with 20 people who were, who, who had, you know, some, you know, stability in their lives by, you know, that, I mean, they've got local jobs, they have incomes, they maybe own homes and they're willing to make a multi-year commitment. No reason not to think you couldn't turn an individual congregation around.
Yeah, it, it it's such an interesting thought because it, I think the hurdle would be in the minds of people who would normally be the ones to do that, that, well, if we, if we do that, what kind of grief are we going to go through? Well, like, yeah. What kind of uh, battles are we going to have to fight? Most people want to avoid those kinds of things, but if you, I, I don't know what it, it is in every case, but in some of these cases, I mean, the churches are big, beautiful buildings with lots of assets with, or, or they're endowed, you know, mm-hmm. they have, um, uh, just, I don't know. I think the art alone is worth, worthy of preservation and it won't be preserved. I, I know, well, you know, because you live in the same area that I do, roughly speaking, some of these churches that are old and beautiful with stained glass are now bars. And, <laughs> yeah. Restaurants. I mean, condominiums or yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I, I remember, um, uh, someone I knew years ago lived, uh, moved into an apartment in Kingston and I uh, went to visit her and, uh, I, I walk in and I'm like, this seems like a church. It's like, oh yeah, because it was. Yeah. They just took the pews out, and I'm like, oh my goodness, you know, it looks like it would have been a beautiful church at one time. Mm-hmm. So, um, so, so there is something of value there, and, and that's something I guess each person has to weigh, and they have to assess what kind of level of commitment they have, what situation they're going to be getting into. It might be worth if you're someone considering this, just maybe visiting your local PCUSA church or something, and just, you know, I. I don't know how that would all work, but maybe doing your homework. Well, and the other thing too is, and I don't know if this is as true in the uh, evangelical uh, churches, but in the main line, um, in the Episcopal, speaking for the Episcopal church, at least there's a, there's a clergy shortage, right? So you're, you're going to, you know, you, you are looking at uh, you can, the church you might walk into on a given Sunday may not even have a a regular minister. They might get somebody once a month or twice a month. Um, And so, you know, there, there is uh, opportunity there as well, I think to, you know, because you're not necessarily going to run into opposition from um, an established authority figure. Now, how does it work? I'm just curious. I, I know every denomination is different, but in the Episcopal Church, let's say uh, it, it's a very liberal left-leaning church, but it's got five people, and you know it doesn't have a, a, a pastor who's there often. It's like a circuit riding situation where once a month they have a pastor, and you go in there uh, with 20 friends, let's say. You, you want to plan a church in that area, and you figure, well, this is better. This is easier. We, we have a building and all of that. If you join the church and then you start voting, right, for the reforms and changes and all of that, what who who controls the church? The denomination still has the church, right? The right. I mean, the polity is going to vary from church to church. I mean, I think there are actually congregational churches a couple of miles from us here in Connecticut that, you know, you and I would both be happy to be in because their polity is such that the congregation still holds all the cards, whether it's the deed to the property or who they call as a minister. Right. So, you know, and, and in the Episcopal church is a bit more hierarchical and and sort of a trust model where property is held in trust. Uh, So, you know, you're not, you're not, um, you know, you you can't just walk in and and sort of uh, take it over. And I mean, there are going to be uh, checks and balances along the way. Um, But by and large, you know, if a church is, um, in good standing and paying its sort of assessment, which is the sort of fee to be a part of the domination. And it, it, it's, it's canonically the rules allow that church to, to function and exist. And, you know, the doctrine and discipline of the, of the, the Protestant Episcopal church is such that, um, you know, the, 
it, 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 I would say this, it's, it's still a church, right? It's not the Rotary. It's not a Kiwanis or a Lodge or anything like that. It's, it's, and this is where I would take issue with the word Reconquista, which I think what we're talking about here is just reformation. It's, I mean, it's, it's, it's the, you know, it's going in and recalling, you know, mm. calling a church back to what it is, not it, which is, you know, if you went into the lodge or the, you know, the road, the rotary and said, we got to start doing Bible study. That's a bit contrary to what that organization is. But if you go into a church and you say, you have a Bible here, you read out of it, you know, you read <laughs> a lot of it, yeah, yeah. Um, you, you sing hymns that are completely Trinitarian and Orthodox and, 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 and talk about the atonement. And, you know, and that's one of the things I found is that when I start to open this stuff up, yeah, people will be like, we haven't heard this before. And some people don't like it, but a lot of people think this is, this is what's been missing. One, one woman said, and you know, one woman said before I started preaching at this church, um, Christ was missing. And, and, and I thought, well, that's, that's, you know, what preacher doesn't want to hear that. Right. But it, that is, but that's, I think, uh, all we have to do, um, and I'm speaking more as a pastor and a preacher, is is be faithful to what's what's there. These are these are you know um, the first you know, few chapters of, of the book of Revelation are, are are helpful here in the sense that you know these churches Jesus is speaking to and addressing them are are in trouble and are uh, backsliding in some cases, but he doesn't speak to them. Uh, as anything but churches. He simply calls them back to repentance. And so there's power in that, either whether you're going in as a pastor or you're going in as a, as a, a group of committed Christians to simply call these organ these institutions, these congregations back to what they are. Um, mm. and, and I think um, we can't forget that. Um, yeah. It, field, right. You know, we don't need to go looking for it. It's right here. Yeah. Yeah. The, um, some of the, Issues, the theological issues you brought up, I'm sure, are definitely in play in a denomination like the Episcopal Church. But there's also these social issues that are causing, I, I would say, more strife now than those theological issues. In other words, being the only church in town without a rainbow flag, mm -hmm. let's say, if you're in a blue area, which I think you, you maybe that describes your situation. I don't know. Uh, that will gain more attention and more pushback then let's say you um, embrace the divinity of Christ, whereas yeah. perhaps other priests don't, right? right. Like, like that's a lesser issue to people in these blue areas than, right. you know, where's the rainbow flag? Why don't you do gay marriages? That kind of thing. Um, so, you know, how has that been? Because because there's, I'm not saying, I don't want to say it's a political element, but it is, I guess. It's a social element that you have to be aware of when you go into these situations that the ground you're fighting on might not be the ground you want to fight on. You, I'd much rather fight about whether Christ is divine or not. Right. <laughs> um, it's much, but, but this, you have a lot to lose. And so you're going into a situation where some of those people in your congregation probably don't agree with your biblical views of sexual ethics. Right. Um, it, it, has that been a, a cause of friction or to get you removed or anything like that? Well, that's where I think you have to really just decide and discern carefully, like, are you called here? Is this is this your calling, right? So the calling of a preacher, the calling of a pastor is going to be different than the calling of a family that is looking for a place to go to church, right? So um, I think, you know, 
spend some time in discerning this, right? And again, I think this is where language of reformation and biblical faithfulness is better than Reconquista, right? Because it's Reconquista is a little bit like, okay, we're going to go plant, replant the flag and take it back, right? So that, you know, you're already setting up sort of confrontational, um, you know, uh, language, language there. So what I have found is that two things, you know, and I was thinking about this before the podcast started. What, what did I want to say about it? And just looking back on my own sort of how did, how did I navigate all of this all of the, you know, all these years? Because this has been developing for 30 years. It's really come to a head in the last few. Um, and it's a process, at least for me, of finding my voice, right, of being able to simply say, this is what I believe, Um once I found that, I found people immediately starting to try to draw me into an argument about why. And I'm able to give reasons why. But here's another thing I've discovered is that the people who want to engage you in that kind of argument really don't care what, you, what the biblical reason is or what the reason is. They just want to use it as a gotcha, as something to get you with. Uh, and so that's where I think, you know, where Jesus, the temptation, I think, for someone like me is to do you know the word casuistry, which basically means to always come up with a really clever argument for that that is true. Um, I do know. <laughs> it's 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 very it's wrapped in so much you know um, so much language that you don't really know what the guy is is trying to say or not. Maybe maybe I'm being casuistic right now, but the point <laughs> is that the point is is that um, there's a lot of power in simply witnessing to the to the word of God to opening the Bible and saying. I don't, I don't do same-sex marriages because this portion of this chapter in scripture, Genesis 1 and 2, Leviticus 18, Romans 1, I cannot reconcile that with these, with these passages and then read them and, and then ask them, can you reconcile this with these passages? Right. And the answer is almost always no. Or the answer is, well, you know, that's just a book or that's just what some men wrote down or, you know, we don't really, you know, it's a question, to, you know, of interpretation, whatever they want to come back at it with. And then then I think the, the next move there is not so much to go to drill down into an argument of uh, whether something is right or wrong, but to really use that to expose someone's unbelief and say, okay, we could have that conversation, but your, your approach is you're not a believer. And then, then that's sort of, well, how can you say that? And I, and I've had people say that they, you know, in writing, they've denied the virgin birth. They've denied the resurrection. They don't believe in sin. They don't believe in heaven or hell, but they still consider themselves a good Christian. And, and I just sort of say, you know, let's walk if they'll even want to in a lot of people don't ever want to talk to me again right but if they do want to talk to me i say well just let's walk through all of that <clears throat> how can you call yourself a christian when you deny every single tenet of of what you know your, your faith is and right 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 yeah why are you saying the apostles creed you know why are you volunteering to read out of you know because we have volunteer lectors or whatever why are you you know why are you volunteering to read out of this book when you when you hate what it says right you know it's like hmm. you're the one reading out of the book and and you're 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 accusing me or blaming me for for trying to follow what it says or teach what it says in clear language and so do you see what I'm getting at there it's absolutely not, it's not so much arguing the point because they don't want to argue the point it's more about 
let the word of God do, you know, work its power, which is of conviction. It'll either convict someone to unto judgment or it'll convict someone unto repentance. And I love that. Yeah. I've seen examples of both. Yeah, you're putting the word of God back into the church. It was right. it, it left. <laughs> someone took right. it and now you're putting it back. And well, physically that's, it was there. The big Bible yeah, yeah, yeah. lectern was always there. And that's yeah. But but you're putting the the teach, you're actually opening it up, reading right. it, teaching it. And applying it and people are going to fall on on one side or the other it's a sword and it cuts and right. um and so you're just you're going in there with the sword uh drawn and so that's um that that's important i mean i have a lot of respect for you to to do that i think most people wouldn't want to be in a situation where the, the, i mean most pastors want a lot of respect i mean if anything is I, i've learned over the last few years is that pastors it doesn't matter what side of the woke debate they're on um a lot of them especially the higher levels you get in you know conferences and organizations and denominations missions agencies they really want respect they they love uh the, the when people like what they have to say and of course if you spend most of your time talking and producing materials you want people to appreciate them. you want people to like it yeah and and you have to be prepared to go into a situation where you have a long-term view of I'm not going to get instant respect here, probably. Right. Or if I do, that's just God's grace. I'm not expecting it. I have to. I have to be in here for the long haul to let the Word of God do its work. So it's it instead of reaping that harvest, it's churning the soil. And okay. um, and and so you know th that's to me th that's the hard part. I think for a lot of people with this is 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 it worth it? Is it possible? Is it it, will we even get fruit? <laughs> like, will those plants not. even come up? You know, you, yeah, and you might not. And like, yes. is it still worth it? Well, I mean, so. I, I feel like it's a spiritual battle every Sunday morning. Um, you know, the, you, sometimes on your podcast, you say something like, you know, have a you know, happy or blessed Lord's Day. And, and, and you're looking forward to it. And, but I'm sometimes wake up on Sunday with dread because I've got to go back into the ring. Right. And so it's, it's, so I was praying in the, in the church yesterday morning before the service, um, really just asking God to use the word and convict people. Right. And, and what, you know, someone came up after the service yesterday and again, and I hear this, this is one of the rewards of doing this in a mainline church an older gentleman, right, and churchgoer for most of his life said to me, I never have heard the, this. It's like I've never heard this passage before or and, and I've never had it explained before. Could I meet with you to talk <laughs> about it? Yeah. And I'm like, yes. I mean, that is why you're paying me a salary. I mean, it's 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 is is to sit here and 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 work through the word with you in this. Um and 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 I thought so. There's there's you know, there's fruit, right? Um, yeah. And this is like what I said. You know, you look at the uh, the ministry of the apostles, right? They, Paul, where did he go? First stop in every town is the synagogue, right? He and they really. I was I've just been reading rereading Acts this morning. They're really somewhat surprised that both the Samaritans and then the Gentiles, Cornelius and all of them get the word, right? They're shocked by this. They they don't expect the Gentiles to get the word. Um, and so I wonder sometimes if evangelicals, I speak, I mean, I speak as an evangelical theologically, but not from the, you know, the SBC or the PCA or even the Anglican Church in North America tradition. I, I, um, I, I wonder if sometimes those in, in the evangelical movement are 
not understanding that the 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 Gentiles can be brought in, right? They're they're preaching to you know, I, I don't know what it's like to go to church with a hundred or two hundred or three hundred believers, right? I don't know mm-hmm. what that's like. Um uh it, it it's it's it, it, so you know when evangelicals um their vision of a church is that oh we all got we all have to be kind of uh, uh you know believing you know born again and that is what you want but um, you know, when you, when you have existing churches out there in, 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 that, that need revival and need reformation, um, it may be a little bit like what the apostles discovered when the Samaritans and the, and the Gentiles actually w- w- were given the word. Um, does that make sense? Yeah. Well, it, it's the distinction between the visible and the invisible church. There's right. churches that don't have a lot of people who are part of the invisible church or the kingdom of God yet or ever and they have a number who are part of the the visible church the temporal body uh that uh, meets there and and as jesus said you 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 tell at the harvest the the difference between the wheat and the tares so it's every church has this dynamic baptist church have this dynamic they try to get i mean they they want to keep a purity by making sure that you're baptized when you profess faith instead of automatically before that time but even in that setting um you're going to have children coming to church who have not been baptized yet or if they have they have done it for the wrong motives or something and there's no way to 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 make that foolproof you're never going to have a church where 100 percent i shouldn't say never but it's it's rare to have a church where 100 percent of everyone attending there is absolutely saved right um as soon as someone has a baby and they you know it's like that, that that percentage is off so um, so what you're talking about going into church is that it's a visible church, but in, they are lacking that invisible part. They don't have, maybe they have a few members who are saved, but they're starving sheep, whatever the case is. And, you know, I, I guess, I mean, I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it would seem to me that if you're going to be in that situation, you for your own sanity would need some sort of fellowship beyond yeah. Right. That local congregation, if that's all you're getting, then you're going to be starving for those spiritual gifts that you need. So it's not an ideal situation in every way, but um, you have a vision. You're you're going somewhere. You're a missionary. Mm -hmm. How do you do that? How do you have um, fellowship in the in the midst of that with actual believers? So I think in every one of these denominations, old line denominations, there's still going to be probably some organizations that uh, have formed around um, faithful biblical uh, witness. So for instance, in the Anglican uh, communion uh, in the, in the Episcopal church right here, just in in the United States, you've got the evangelical fellowship in the Anglican communion. Uh, uh, You've got something called communion partners, which is a handful of bishops in the Episcopal church who are left who maintain a a biblical understanding of marriage. Um, You have something called the the prayer book society, which, which promotes the the traditional book of common prayer. Um, So I would say that, you know, for the first few years of my parish ministry, I I really just kind of kept my, you know, shoulder to the wheel and, and threw myself into the parish. And then four or five years into it, I thought, man, I'm missing something. Right. And, and turned out to be exactly what you're saying. So Mm you know, good old Google led me to a couple of these, these sites and some of them I had known about, or, you know, had heard about. So I finally, finally joined, finally, you know, started going to the conferences, um, and, uh, and, and, 
you know, because I had worked in the national office at one point, I actually did know a lot of people. I had quite a network of people that I knew already um, that I was able to tap into and to reactivate. So, <clears throat> you know, that's, yeah. I mean, I, I've got, I've got sort of, sort of a bullet list of things, to, you know, how to be faithful in a mainline church. And, and we were kind of talking about them, but, you know, first thing is to understand that it's, that it is hard. Like you're saying, you're going to feel sidelined. You're going to feel alone. Um, you'll wonder why you're do why you're doing it. Um, and, and boy, the temptation to just leave and start something else or leave. And, you know, the grass is always greener uh, syndrome. But, you know, listening to your show, you learn uh, quickly that, you know, P PCA, SBC, these things you think are just bulwarks are not actually. And They're so, not. you know, and I, and I had seen some of that in the Anglican Church in North, or North America. Um, I was talking with uh, uh, trading comments with Jack Waters at the North American Anglican, who, who wrote a blog about why Anglicans shouldn't be building new colleges. And it's basically he's saying, you know, we 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 started our own our new denomination. We took a lot of Episcopalian DNA with us. So some of the problems that uh, the Episcopal Church had are cropping up over there as well. So, you know, there's that. There is something I think you have to really struggle with, though, is that is, you know, is your witness compromised? You know, is, is you know, is, you have, have no, um, you know, what fellowship has uh, light, you know, with darkness or, you know, God with Belial, right? I mean, what, yeah. what are you, you know, are you just compromised even by continuing to be in association? Um, and, and are there things you can't say, right? I mean, right. Um, and there are, I, I mean, I cannot preach some things, you know, that, that, uh, or at least I have to goes back to that casuistry, right? I mean, at least I have to be uh, clever, uh, you know, or, or uh, in how I say it. Um, and you know, at some point, you have to decide: are you how how long are you willing to live like that? And, and is that right. too, is that too compromised? You know, what about the? This is my last question. What about the um, effect you have in the community? Do you have more influence because you are the pastor of a? mainline church that's gone back in that community for hundreds of years versus if you were going to start as a church planner in a strip mall, mm -hmm. do, you, do well, you have more influence going to board meetings for the town or school board meetings or whatever? I, you know, the, so the, the two examples I've had so far of the two churches I've worked in pastored, one was in New York city and uh, you know, no, I didn't have any automatic, uh, uh, influence in New York City because I think it's just too big, right? You know, you're, you're small church in New York City. You're not going to have much um, influence, uh, but here I think yes because um, you know it's it. But I think that's more of a function of it being a small town and and um, and and the church is being, as you say, institutions that have gone back a long way. Um, and so when you show up at the school board meeting and you say. You know, there were a lot of four-letter words in the recent school play. Is that something we really, you know, need to be doing? And you maybe say that's silly, but you know, I think this is where you start to take back the culture on a local level, right? I mean, you know, the High School Musical couple last month was was a, a teenage version of, of of Mean Girls, which is actually a decent morality play, right? But there's still a lot of like meanness in the in the, in the characters, and to see you know, young, young uh, children, not young children, but, you know, teenage girls and boys acting some of that out and using that language, it's not edifying, right? So to go to the school board and say, could we reconsider this? I think it lets them know that there's still sort of community-minded 
gatekeepers, for lack of a better word out there. I mean, because we're way past the era where people will, you know, say a bad word in, in front of me wearing my collar and apologize, right? I mean, people don't even think about it anymore. So it's... Uh, That's an I, interesting observation. Yeah, I, I, I'm not aware of that because, I mean, I, I guess not having the, that in a church and ever in a church where someone had the priestly collar, but that, but I know just growing up in upstate New York where there are Catholics and you'd see this once in a while that there was a level of respect, um, given to them. Um, but I, I, I haven't seen that transition. So you, you felt that personally then. Yeah. And I saw it in the city. I mean, and it's really happened quickly in the last 10 years when I first, when I first mm. put the collar on, when I was ordained a deacon, it was what, 2009 and people would give their seat up on the subway. Not every time, but but it it happened. And you know, I remember having breakfast one time and went going to pay, and some you know cashier said, "Oh, it's been paid for, right?" So it's that by the late by the you know I was you know I'd say by 2017 2018, it was more likely I'd get cursed at or yelled at. Most of the time, I'd just be left alone. But you know, it got to the point where I didn't want to wear my collar and in public because it just seemed to draw people just seemed to feel like they could accuse me of being a you know child molester. Oh my goodness. Oh my <laughs> goodness. That's so terrible. All right. Well, uh, yeah, on that note, but uh, <laughs> we do have to, um, in the podcast, uh, again, the links are in the info section for people who want to go check out more of, uh, Jake Dell's ministry and organizations he's part of. Uh, and if you want to read his article, truthscript.com to check that out. And um, you can be sure on uh, most Tuesdays, hopefully, in at least the coming months, we're going to be having uh, some some other guests come on uh, for Truth Script Tuesday. So um, with that, God bless. More coming. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.